Turns to the book of Malachi, chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3, and I'm going to be covering a topic. The last couple of sermons, we've been discussing finances and money and giving and wealth and possessions and and uh, what the Bible says about those things and what our attitudes should be like. And um, we've corrected some attitudes and particularly the uh, materialism and having a, an attitude of looking at wealth and possessions as if that's all that matters in life and, and, and shows how, how faulty that worldview is and not only that, but how dangerous that worldview is. On the flip side of that... <clears throat> Um, God calls us to be givers, to be generous. And um, the first place we need to be generous and thoughtful towards is the kingdom of God. And so our passage today in Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, will focus on, on what it means to give to the Lord. And, and, and it's a thought-provoking passage. It's a passage you've all known and heard before. And I hope to do justice in explaining the meaning. Um, chapter 3, verse 6. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust the sojourners and do not fear me. Oh, I'm sorry. Michael, I don't, I can't see the numbers. <laughs> the verse numbers are so tiny, I can't see them. All right, that's better. Okay, for I do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing till there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruit of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this privilege and opportunity to minister your word. Once again, I thank you, Lord, that I could see clearly the words, although my vision blurred on the verse numbers, I thank you, God, for the ability to see. Oh, Lord, we, we praise you and look to you now to instruct us in your word. Give us, oh, Lord, understanding and humble hearts Give us hearing, O oh Lord, and may we apply what we hear today to our lives in faith. O oh Lord, I pray from my own mind and my heart and my lips that you would anoint me with your Holy Spirit and carry me along for your glory and honor in Christ's name. Amen. 
the topic of tithing, and probably the one topic if you knew I was preaching on today, you would not come to church. And if you come from a Pentecostal background, it's a sermon you hear quite often because of the constant barrage to give more, more, more. And I say that because I came from a Pentecostal background, which was blended in with a word-faith approach. And so the prosperity gospel hinges on these kinds of verses. But it's here, and this is God's word, and there are some important lessons that we must glean from it. We must avoid it and not, must not reject it because there is a challenge here and there is a, uh, there is a call here to God's people to think about how we treat God. The book of Malachi, or the prophet Malachi, was set, sent during a time when the nation of Israel was in apostasy. Israel had returned from captivity in Babylon and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt Jerusalem and became very settled. And, and after a while, they became comfortable and settled back into some of their old ways and their old attitudes. And what they really were demonstrating was that they didn't care about God. Uh, they had a, a very careless attitude in their approach to worship. They had a careless attitude um, in terms of how they treated him. And, and the book of Malachi addresses this attitude that had developed in Israel. And in particular, they were experiencing during this time a great um, economic hardship. There was a famine in the land. Times were tough. And so as a result, there wasn't as much resources um, the economy was hurting, people were hurting, and uh, as a result, they were looking to God and saying, why, why, Lord, why is this happening to us? What have we done to deserve this? Right? And that's the kind of life, isn't it, right? When bad times come, automatically we begin to look to heaven and say, Lord, Lord why? Or at least we should think that way. What's going on? And if we're in a humble state, we want to reflect upon well, there are areas in my life that have dishonored the Lord. In this case, the whole nation is experiencing um, hardship, and it is evident that it is the hand of God that is upon them. And it wasn't that God had changed his disposition to them. It was that they had changed their disposition towards God. And that brings us to the opening text in verse 6. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed." It is a reminder that God does not change. When we study the attributes of God, one of the most important attributes that is on display is the attribute of immutability. It means that God cannot change and he will not change. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. He is as holy today as he was uh, 2,000 years ago. He is as righteous today as he will be 2,000 years in the future. His mercy, his justice, his wrath are the same. God, his character, his purity, his perfections do not change for the better nor for the worse. If he was to change, then he would cease to be God. And if the Lord were to improve himself, how could he be God? How could he be all-knowing if there was still more to learn? How we believe that God is holy and righteous and, and in that sense that is moral perfection and his ways are always righteous. To say that God needs to change or to improve or become better would be then to admit that he is far from perfect. 
And even worse than that, if God were to sin or were to change his mind or break his own covenant, then he would be a liar. Then he would cease to be God as well. And so unlike man, God is consistent and he is unchangeable in his character and therefore we can trust him, right? We have confidence in him. This is why the Bible tells us not to trust in man, but to put our trust in God, Psalm 118.8. And he goes on to say them, therefore, because I do not change, you are not consumed. Right? It is, it is if anything, the hardship that Israel was experiencing was not due to God's change. God had been merciful. They would have died altogether if God was someone to change. Rather, he has shown his faithfulness. He says in verse 7, from the days of your Fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes. You've now kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. He's calling them to repentance. They had changed. They are the ones who have turned their hearts against God. And God had told them from the book of Deuteronomy, from the very beginning, that if the people of Israel were to break this covenant, if they were to change, that curses would come upon them rather than blessings. This was the old covenant economy. So he's calling upon them through the prophet Malachi, repent, return to me, and I will return to you. They needed to make a 180 turn. And so naturally the question arises from Malachi's audience, or rather Malachi, through the Spirit, presumes how they will respond, but you will say, how shall we return? All right, well, what do you mean? Where did we go wrong? How shall we repent? And he says to them, he says to them, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. I want you to think about that for a minute. Will a man rob God? Now let's think about that for a minute. How difficult it is to even have that thought of robbing God. Who is going to scale into the heavenly sanctum of God's courts and break into the holy of holies of heaven and steal anything from God. Clearly, that's not what's intended here. It's absurd to think that someone could steal from God. And so they say, well, well how are we robbing you? He says, in your tithes and contributions. Because of which there is a curse upon you. For you are all robbing me, the whole nation of you, and therefore a curse has come upon you. So this brings us to the point of what are the tithes and offerings? Why is it robbing God to withhold the tithes and offerings? And is it applicable to us as New Testament believers? So let's answer those questions first thing we want to do is understand what is the tithe. Now, there are, there are two areas in the Old Testament that predate the law where we see tithing. First, in Genesis chapter 13, when the Lord, I mean, rather, when Abraham approaches Melchizedek, he offers him a tithe to, uh, um, of all that he has, symbolizing that Melchizedek was a priest of of God. And so he, he offers him a tenth of his income. But more importantly, in Genesis 28, it was when Jacob had the dream of the stairway to heaven and 
He sees the angels descending and ascending up and down, and he builds a, 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 an altar there and calls it Bethel, the place or the house of God. And there he makes a covenant. He says, Lord, if you'll be with me, then I will give you a tenth of everything I have. And so there's this, this beginning this, that predates the law of, of the patriarchs, of, of Abraham and Jacob covenanting to, or demonstrating in one way or the other, of giving a tenth to God in honor and gratitude and thankfulness as an expression to God. When the law is given to Israel on Mount Sinai, the tithe becomes more crystallized and more um, mandated in terms of what is expected of God's people. Now, let me just clarify something. The, twer- the term tithe literally means a tenth. It means 10%. And I, and I, I want to clarify this because oftentimes... I hear people say, I'm giving my tithe to the Lord this week. If it's not 10% of your income, it's not a tithe. You say, I'm giving my offering to the Lord. I'm giving my weekly donation to the Lord. But unless it's actually 10%, it's not a tithe. The word tithe literally means 10% of one's income. Now, tithing has been practiced among Jews and Christians uh, for generations. And again, I'm going back to the, to the law and to the Mosaic Covenant to understand how this developed. When God had set Israel apart and took them out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land, he gave them the tithe to establish his kingdom in Israel. This was a theocracy. And in this theocracy, there was God who was the king and the priests who were the governors of which of the nation. And the priesthood of Levites needed to be supported, and they did not have land for which that they would inherit, and so the money that came in from the tithe was to support them. But there's a bigger picture beyond all that. It was a, it was a reminder to Israel that everything that they had belonged to God. Psalm 24, 1 tells us the earth and the fullness thereof, all of it belongs to God. And the people of Israel knew this. The tithe was an expression and acknowledgement of gratitude and worship to God for all he had done for them. Leviticus 27, 30 says this, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, It is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. God had wanted them to set apart 10% of everything they had to God. It was his. It was holy. It was consecrated. It didn't belong to Israel. It belonged to God. And he wanted to instill in them a sense that they are stewards. He wanted to instill in them a sense that what you have does not belong to you and I'm asking you to return 10% of it to me and you can keep the 90. Why did God command them to tithe? Deuteronomy 14.23 tells us why. That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. It was to fear God. It was to recognize that 
Everything you had in life belongs to him, that you belong to him. You don't belong to yourself. Not only that, but it was the first fruits. Every firstborn animal belonged to God. Everything that was given to you was an acknowledgement and recognition that God deserves the honor by giving him the first fruits of everything that comes my way. It means right off the top, the very best, the first harvest, the first penny made. It was a way of saying that God gets the very best and gets the first because he deserves it. It was not to be hoarded, consumed, or distributed. It belonged to God, the tenth. And to hold back the tenth, to hold back the tithe, to hold back the first fruits, to give God second best or to give him scraps was to show contempt for God. And likewise invites his judgment. Look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Solomon, in writing in his book of wisdom, shows us that this is the basis of economic wisdom. And within that context, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on, do not lean on your understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he'll make straight your paths. Within that same framework, we hear this. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce and then your barns will be filled with the plenty and your vats will be bursting within to take the tent and keep it for yourself was essentially taking something that didn't belong to you the last I checked that's the definition for the word stealing you take something that doesn't belong to you this is stealing The Ten Commandments tell us it is a crime to steal. You steal from me, you might get in trouble with the law. You steal from the federal government, you might go to jail. You steal from God, you're looking for problems. The failure to give the full tithe was in simple terms robbing God. It wasn't like they weren't giving at all. They were giving. They just weren't giving God the first fruits. They weren't giving him the tithe. They were giving him second best. They were giving him scraps. Now clearly God doesn't need the money. God owns everything. He's entrusted us with the stewardship God had set apart the tithe, as I said, to support the Levites. Numbers 18.24. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present on a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. It was based on this principle that the Levites were able to serve in the temple, that they had food on their table. They were supported by the people of the nation. If the people don't tithe, the priests starve. If they starve, they have to go to work. If they have to go to work, they can't serve God in the temple. And if they can't serve God in the temple, then everything falls apart because it's at the temple which is the center of worship. It is where God's word is taught. It is where his precepts and instructions are given. So to shortchange the temple, to shortchange the synagogue, was to shortchange themselves, essentially. 
There was another tithe in Deuteronomy 12 that was set up for the sacred feasts. In Deuteronomy 26, 12 through 13, there was a triannual tithe that was taken for the poor and the widows and the orphans. Altogether, that would come annually to about 23% for the Israelite family. And through this giving, those who ministered to the poor people were supported. Uh, the, the poor were taken care of. The temple was funded. And it's with this in mind that we get to the New Testament. And we see the very same basis of this in the beginning of the church. Now, people like John MacArthur have made the argument that the reason why we don't have the same 23% tithe is because when you look to Romans 13, we're not called under a theocracy no more, but we're called to pay our taxes to Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So a bulk of our income goes to the federal government, the state government, whatever government takes our taxes to use for the funding of the society or kingdom that we live in. But it does not negate the principle that a tenth still belongs to God. There is a principle there. There is a principle of setting aside the first fruits, a portion of what God has given us to honor him. Now, although the New Testament doesn't give us specific instructions to tithe, the principle does exist. And we can't hold a, le- can't hold a legalistic view of it because this is a matter of the heart, not of the head. This is a matter of how one seeks to honor God. National Israel had fallen into apostasy. And as a result, they were suffering. They didn't realize what they were doing, but the whole nation was guilty systemically of robbing God. And the consequences were quite severe. He says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. According to Relevant Magazine, Tithers make up about 10 to 25% of a normal congregation. Estimates only 5% of the United States population tithes, with 80% of Americans only giving 2% of their income. According to another survey, evangelical Christians polled on average, give 2.5% of their income and only about 4% of professing Christians give 10% of their income to the church. If we take the whole of Christianity in America today, would God say the same thing? You're all robbing me. Imagine if people were to stretch their pockets and give more. You see, the materialistic attitude hinders us from giving to God. The reason why I preached on materialism for two weeks was to bring us to the point to realize the reason why so many Christians don't have anything to give to God is because they spend it all on themselves. Just think of this. I'm not going to... I'm not pointing fingers. I don't know how you live your lives. But I I know how much Starbucks costs. I don't go there. I don't like Starbucks. 
and I think they're outrageous. I make my own pot of coffee every morning. But just imagine if you went to Starbucks, and I'm going to say let's average $7 for a cup of coffee, and is if you get a medium grande or one of those specialty coffees, I've seen them go as high as 10 I don't drink them. My daughter has a fancy for them, and she gets gift cards for her birthday. I see what they cost, and I'm outraged. She asked me to buy it. I said, never. Let's just say on average seven. Seven days a week, you go out and buy coffee at Starbucks. That's $50 a week times four weeks. That's $200 a month on coffee. What do you give to God? You go to Starbucks often, you're probably sitting there and thinking, wow. Think of somewhere else where you spend money where it's a waste. The kingdom of God languishes while his people spend money foolishly on things that pass away. We must realize that when we do not allocate our financial resources to the church and to missions, we're stealing from God. Do we need to tithe? I guess that's the the follow-up question to this. Well, we're believers. We're under the New Testament. We're not under the old economy. As New Testament believers, we're free. We're under grace, not under the law. And so the the natural mind, not the spiritual, but the natural mind automatically says, yes, that means I can give a lot less. I guess that's where that 2% number comes from. You know, one person made a good point to me. I was talking about this. They said, you know, back in the 60s, people would put a dollar in the, in the plate and thought they were doing God a favor. People are still putting a dollar in the plate and thinking they're doing God a favor. Uh, the, the currency has inflated quite a bit since 1960. Look what the Lord says. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer for you, that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field and shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts, and the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God is saying to Israel, put me to the test. Bring the tithes in and see if I will not bless you. Now, let me just be careful here. This is where the prosperity preacher goes wrong. They lure you in and manipulate you to give money to the church so that you get the blessing, right? You've heard the prosperity preacher, give me $10 today and God will multiply and give you 100 I'm not going to sit here and sell you that bill of good. But if you give cheerfully, you give systematically, you give consistently to God with a desire to worship him in faith and love and honor, God will bless you. God will bless you. I can't afford it, Bob. You can't afford not to give. Just remember this. You can never outgive the greatest giver of all. You can't outgive God. And so the Lord issues this challenge to us. He says, I'll open the windows of heaven for you. 
But what about us? Well, if we learned one thing about the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't lower the standards. It increases the standards. Listen to James Montgomery Boyce. In the New Testament, the obligations of the Old Testament legislation is heightened rather than lessened. That is, the law is interpreted in its foolish measure. So while we are not required to give a specific tenth of our income, it is hard to think of a normal Christian blessed with the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ doing less. Under reasonable circumstances, any true believer in Christ should give more than a tenth. For all we have is the Lord's. Approaching giving is not a matter of how much should we give, it's how much do we hold back? Let's look at some of the New Testament examples we have for us. In Mark 12, 41 through 44, notice, notice what happens here. Turn to your Bibles as Jesus pays close attention to how one woman gives, well, he pays attention to how everybody's giving to the temple. But he takes recognition of this one woman, the widow's offering in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Right? We're not supposed to look at what other people put in the play, right? It's, it's inappropriate. It's not polite. There's Jesus sitting right by the money box watching everybody. <laughs> but you know what that tells us? God sees everything. More importantly, God sees our heart. God sees not so much what we give, but our hearts. He says this, many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came. She put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called to his disciples and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they have contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. This woman gave sacrificially. See, she had so little, she didn't think about, well, I gotta pay this bill or that bill. This is all I got, but I'm giving it to God. I'm giving it to, to a sense of awe and admiration and thankfulness and love and worship. And Jesus said she, with her two pennies, gave more than all the rich people who came in. It's not how much you give, it's your heart. She didn't sit there and say 10%, 20%, 5%. She gave liberally, sacrificially, and cheerfully. And that's what God honors. You see, it's about our heart with God. In Acts 2, 44 through 47, it tells us that they were laying the money at the apostles' feet so that no one had need in the church. People were so generous. Barnabas was selling land. <coughs> Did they sit there and count, oh, 10% off my net and off the... No! There was a liberality to the giving in the church. No wonder the church grew exponentially in the book of Acts. You see, it's not just tithing, it's the principle of saying everything I have belongs to God and I want to use whatever resources I've gone cheerfully to give back to him in the kingdom. 
John Piper says this, it is irrational to think that giving 10% of that money to church settles the issue of good stewardship in a world of such immense need and in a country of such immense luxury and under the commission of such a powerful Lord, the issue of stewardship is not shall I tithe, but rather how much of God's trust fund should I surround myself with comforts. And so with that, let me give a few practical considerations. Although the New Testament does not command tithing, we are commanded to give to the church and to the work of the kingdom. Listen to what Scripture says. 1 Corinthians 16.2 tells us that on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now this was... Paul instructing the church to set aside money for the church in Jerusalem. But the practice of giving every week to church became established early on. It was not only for the relief of the poor, but as we'll see in a little while, also for the support of the local churches as elders and pastors are established. As you prosper is the principle. In other words, it's not a number. It says you prosper as the Lord puts it on your heart to give genuinely, to give bountifully. The second aspect or the second practical application here is that this money is to be used for the support of ministry. 1 Corinthians 9, 12, uh, Paul says, we have not made use of this right. Well, what is the right? The right is to, to earn a living from the gospel. Do you not know, verse 13, that those who are employed in the temple get their service, get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in their sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, 12 through 14. So Paul's setting up something, saying, listen, in the old covenant, the tithes were given to support the Levites. Well, I'm saying that the same principle applies to ministers of the gospel whether that's paul as a missionary although he's not making use of the right or whether it's a pastor of a local church when churches give their pastors and ministers and missions are able to do more imagine if the numbers were reversed imagine if all christians imagine if we all gave 10 percent of our income to the kingdom Could you imagine what we could do for God? It would radically change the trajectory of how the gospel goes forward. Also, turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look in verse 1. I want you to, Paul is acknowledging how the saints here had given abundantly out of their hearts. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, as of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. The people of Macedonia were so eager 
to participate in the relief of the saints in Jerusalem, supporting Paul's missionary work. They didn't just give what they could afford, they gave beyond what they could afford. And Paul acknowledges that. Now I want you to think about it because here's Jesus with the widow of the two mites. He could have said to the widow, stop, you're poor. Don't give your money to the temple. They're a corrupt organization. Keep your money. Right? That, that's what you think Jesus would have said. But no, he says, look, this is the kind of person we should be. Paul could have said to the Macedonians, you guys are poor, please don't, don't give to me. I don't need the money. No, no, you guys keep it, keep it. You're giving too much. No, Paul sees this as an amazing testimony of what he says here, that they gave themselves first to the Lord. You see, it was a matter of the heart. They had given themselves to God. They had surrendered their life to God in such a way that they realized whatever they had belonged to God anyway. They didn't hold on to money tight. Chapter 9, one chapter over, based on all of this, Paul gives a, a standard. Paul gives instructions about how we ought to give. Listen in verse 6. The point is this, chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Listen to this. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give, as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Here's, this is the whole point here. Do I give 10%, 20%, 5%? Whatever you give is between you and God. It's no one else's business. No one should compel you to give or tell you what to give. It is a matter between you and the Lord, but whatever you give, give cheerfully with a heart of gratitude, love, and thankfulness to God. That's the kind of giving God loves. He loves a cheerful giver. If you got to put the money in the offering box, oh, it hurts me, you know, if you're complaining about it, don't give. God doesn't want it. Don't give to God begrudgingly. God, and that really comes down to your whole life. Your spirituality and your attitude towards money go hand in hand. You're withholding from God. You're withholding him not just financially. You're withholding from him in every area of your life. Let me conclude. I would imagine that this is an area that we can all grow and improve on. Every one of us. Some more than others. If we look at those statistics earlier, that 10 to 20% of the church tithe and the rest gives very little. I'm sure that you go through every church, it's probably accurate. If everybody 
If everybody gave more, gave sacrificially, gave cheerfully, gave consistently, how God would bless this little church. I recently visited my friends in Colorado and they attend to small Presbyterian churches. The Presbyterians, if you don't know, are very committed tithers. Their church may be a little bit bigger than ours. It's not a big church. And I've known this church for a long time. My friend is, was a trustee there for many years. We were talking the other day, well, a few weeks ago when I was there, and, and they were in the process of buying a building, and I said, well, how much do you have in the bank? $3 million. $3 million? And like I said, it's a church not much bigger than ours. $3 million. Where did you get $3 million? Someone die and leave you a lot? No. Because everybody in the church tithes. That's a lot of money. When I saw how much they were able to do for the kingdom is amazing. Not a big church. I want you to think of it in this light. If we withhold from God, what does it say about a God who withheld nothing from us? Romans 8.31, it says this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? We all love these verses, don't we? If he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God, who is the ultimate giver, who graciously gives us everything we need before we ask for it, if God gave us it says he did not spare his son. That means he freely gave us everything he had. His son, would you give your child up for anything? He gave us his son. Then the question is, why do we hold back from him? Do we not trust him? Do we not love him? Do we think he's not worthy? May God correct our hearts in this area. More importantly, may he be honored with the way we treat him with our wealth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We all here are naked before you, Lord. I can't look into the hearts of others, but I could see into my own heart. And Lord, I ask that you would help me along with the church to help us to be more generous, to be more fruitful, to acknowledge, O oh Lord, your right over what we possess and that it's yours. That we're stewards and that we give to you what is rightfully yours. Free us, O oh Lord, from a wrong attitude about money. And I pray that you would prosper grace and truth and prosper the kingdom, not just New York, but all over, Lord, that, that your people would be more generous and more giving. 
the nation with so much abundance, O Lord. I pray that we would turn back to you and give you what is rightfully yours. In Jesus' name, amen.